0: Welcome to The Jess Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. On this episode, I'm excited to have Jason Feuden, CEO of Placemaker. Jason, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Jess. Um, So for people who don't know Placemaker, can you tell us about it? Sure, so we're uh, just
1: under a six-year venture-backed company. Uh, We're focused on the intersection of hospitality and multifamily. And our long-term view of the world is that uh, the major food groups of urban real estate, so think home, hotel, retail, work. Are all going to come together in single buildings, and you're going to be able to use spaces for a pretty diverse customer set. And that leads to a couple of things. One, more cash flow and more value for the real estate, right? You can reduce your volatility and have much higher income streams. And then for customers, you know, whether it's residents, guests, uh, office workers, um, you end up with better experiences. And so it plays on two themes that you see you've seen as like growing trends in real estate. One is higher utilization, lower chunk price. So I think more people using spaces, but paying a little less. And then the other is the commingling of uses, bringing together different uses in a single building. And so that's what we do. Uh, We have just under 2,000 units under management today. uh, Excuse me, just over 2,000 units under management today. Uh, We've put over a billion dollars of real estate on the platform. It teams just under 300 people. As I mentioned, we're venture backed. Uh, My background is institutional real estate. So I used to build high-rise buildings before uh, getting into the startup game. And um, it's been... It's been a lot of fun. So happy to happy to share the experience, the company, talk about our customers, we talk about our tech stack, talk about the real estate. Uh, we're very much a prop co-op model at Stack Enabled. So we so we do a bunch of things. And so tell us about the ideal customers. So I break our customers into two pieces, uh, real estate customers and consumers. So our real estate customers, we have a product called a pop-up hotel. It's pretty simple. Let's say, Jess, you built a, a 300 unit apartment building. In a city, when you deliver, you deliver it all at once and empty. And so you give us a hundred of those 300 units. We fill it with a brand new rented furniture and we run a hundred unit apartment hotel out of your vacancy as you lease up the building. And so for you, the owner, we produce a few million dollars of extra income on otherwise vacant units. Uh, so our customer on the real estate side for Pop Up is someone who builds high-rise urban, urban real estate. Uh, our second product is called Hospitality Living, and that's where we take that same 300 unit apartment building, and instead of just monetizing the vacancy with furnished stays, we run the whole building as a blend of furnished and unfurnished short and long stay on a forever basis, and that increases the in-place income by 50, 100, 200 um, percent, so you have a tremendously higher volume of cash flow, and you get a debt, you know, think like mortgage for some of your less Real estate folks, uh, that's for that's for apartment building, so it's cheaper debt, and that leads to really large levered cash flow. Uh, and that is anyone who wants to make more money in real estate.
0: Can we break that down for a bit for people not familiar with that terminology? Short and long term stay forever. Like, what does that
1: actually mean for uh, non real estate folks? Yeah, so t- let's take a three hundred unit apartment building, and let's pick Miami. Everyone knows Miami, right? Everyone loves South Florida. Three hundred unit apartment building in Miami. If someone was to sign a one year lease. They get an apartment. Let's just say it's $2,000 a month. Uh, that means that they're paying $24,000 a year for that one-bedroom apartment. The owner is going to end up collecting something like $15,000 in profit after all expenses. So the owner's getting $15,000 a year for that one-bedroom apartment. Uh, and there's 300 of them. which us make the whole building one-bedroom apartments. We'd say, oh, well, you know, we're in Miami. There's a lot of families that come for week-long vacations. There's a bunch of corporate need for reload and training. Let's take 150 of those 300 units and furnish them. Then within that furnished program, we might have n- nightly folks. Well, they're maybe not paying 2000 a month, maybe they're paying 200 a night. Well, 200 a night is 6000 a month. And you know, so on that 6000 a month, maybe we're doing so 6000 a month, 12 months a year, it's like $72,000 in revenue to 24,000. And so we can double or triple the profit by having some furnished. If we furnish the whole building with transient, that might be too much. There might not be the demand to support that in that location. And so what we do is we have some furnished, some unfurnished, some short stay, some two month stay for reload, and we mix it up and, and we play with length of stay uh, depending on the season. So go, let's pick Miami again. You're in this building in Miami. Well, in the winter season, it's gangbusters, right? Like. You take October, November through February, March, and people are paying $300 a night. You take the debt of summer, it's not all that pleasant. And so what you end up doing is, you know, Blackstone just put a major headquarters in Miami. In the summer, you're probably all the Blackstone interns for 10 weeks, right? and you don't do a lot of transient. But in the winter, you do a lot of transient. So you're you're moving lengths of stay in order to actually push the in-place income on the furnished. And on the unfurnished, all the residents get access to hospitality services. So Jess, you'd say you signed that lease for $2,000 a month. But, you know, your are just, are a big deal. You got a lot going on. Uh, uh, you know, you don't want to go clean your apartment all the time. So you can opt into cleaning services. You can just schedule it so that, you know, before your, let's say your parents are visiting for the weekend, um, you know, you can just schedule a cleaning. So you show up and your, your room's clean. You have to go get a cleaning person. Or let's say you're super lazy and you love to have fresh linens. You just opt into linen service. And so you can have your bed turned, your towels fresh. And so that $2,000 a month apartment might cost you 25 or 2,800 bucks a month, but all of a sudden now it's a hospitality service apartment, And so by bringing all those services in a single building, we can increase that annual income by, let's say it was going to be $10 million, but now maybe it's $15 million. So you, so the real estate owners now making way more money and the product way more sticky for customers. Because as a guest, you now have a 700-square-foot, one-bedroom apartment instead of 200-square-foot hotel room. And as a resident, you now get great services on an a la carte basis. Our view is that over time, the majority of core urban real estate, where that spread in pricing exists, will be these co buildings. They'll be designed for it from the ground up. They'll be optimized in terms of unit sizing and mix for it. And that pop gets even larger and we've built a company that's the platform for that. So we are the on the ground operations, we're the tech stack, we're the brand, we're the customer, you know, customer funnels, we're the whole thing. Um, yeah, so that's maybe a little, still too real estate-y, but that, that's why it works for real estate folks.
0: (laughs) That's great. So when you think about, you know, platform businesses can grow so big, you know, um, we just had a Joseph Woodbury from neighbor on,
1: do you know, neighbor? I'm familiar with them, um, but I don't know. I don't know, Joseph.
0: They're, I mean, they're really expanding. They're in almost every city. They are in every state in the country and they're in almost every city now. And it's like, it's working, right? And so mm-hmm. the long-term potential, if they can keep that going is is insane, right? Um, and yet there are so many platform businesses that haven't achieved what you, ha- you have and get a billion dollars worth of property on a platform. What do you attribute your success to? What do you think you're doing different that others haven't?
1: I'd start by saying the entire time, it feels like you're failing. Um, so like in hindsight, you know, you, you look back and you're like, oh my goodness, like look at the ground we've covered and what we've done. And, and our business plan from five and a half years ago is playing out today. So while we've gotten smarter around the edges, our long-term view of real estate's remained unchanged. Our North Stars remained unchanged. We've built what we set out to build. Uh, COVID in the heart of that laid off a huge percentage of the company. I mean, it, you know, it's not a straight line. Um, you do good work. Um, you pick a, you know, pick solid partners. You put team members first, you build a team that, you know, can conquer all challenges. And the way I think about it is, um, you can stuck get crushed by your environment, no matter how good you are. So like, Jess, you look like you'd be a better swimmer than me. I'm a terrible swimmer, but if we're both swimming and there's, you know, there's a current behind us, we're both going to make it. Right. And then, um, if there's a current in front of us and it's kind of weak, you know, maybe you make it and I don't make it. And if there's a tidal wave, we all die. And so that's kind of the nature of building a business, right? You're building it in an external environment. So you got to be as best equipped as you can be. You got to put the time in, you have to have a long-term view, but like eyes on the short-term cash position. Um, And you do your best work and you know, maybe you make it, maybe you don't make it, but the better work you do and the better team and partners you surround yourself with, uh, the more likely you are.
0: When you think about specifically though, coming to the platform business, When when it comes to building a platform of any kind, what are a couple of things that you think you guys uh, were able to get right?
1: The structure of the business. So there's a lot of folks uh, that were around that are not here anymore in adjacent businesses where they acquired their inventory on the platform through um, leases or major capital outlay. And the, the problem with that, it's a highly levered business. So if the world doesn't go your way, you get crushed by that lease obligation or those large capital places. You know, one of the biggest examples of that is going to be WeWork. It's adjacent to us on the office side. Um, they spent a tremendous amount of hard dollars on their spaces and they took on tremendous lease obligation. And then, you know, in the heart of COVID with their term duration of their customers, they just, they were upside down. You know, WeWork's still around today at 5% of its peak value, maybe less. Um, and there's similar businesses in the hospitality and multi space uh, that either got bailouts or went bankrupt. And one of the things that we did is we said, we're going to build a business that's designed for cycles. That has largely served us. We're incredibly asset light on the platform side. And that means we can float. And when COVID happened, we were able to make quick changes. Uh, our biggest expense are our people. Uh, and by not having some of that kind of embedded long term expense that's unshakable, it made us more flexible. That's because the world went wrong. If the world had gone right for some of the adjacent businesses, they may have beat us because they, you know, blitz scaled or did everything else faster and we we couldn't. Um, so we made a bet, but our bet was it's not a winner-take-all market. We will do good work. And even if someone like flies in front of us in terms of speed, you know, it's kind of that tortoise and hare thing. Not that we're the tortoise and we've more than 100% grown revenue every single year. But, about, but like... But, but it wasn't 300%, it wasn't 500%. Uh, so that's the bet we made is we, we bet on a, what we thought was an enduring business model and then did the work as opposed to chase growth at all costs.
0: And was that every year since
1: founding? Yes. Every year since founding, we've grown over.
0: And was that 2017? When did
1: you go start? Uh, we started in 17 and then we actually rolled the product out in 18. So from 18 until okay. now, we've grown by over 100% every year.
0: Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Like I said, it doesn't feel like it along the way,
1: but it, that's what it's been. Yeah.
0: Can you talk a little bit about y- your, your previous life and what you used to do with the trust and how some of those things have been
1: assets of you as you built this business? Yeah, I guess I'll talk about two things. One, I did my undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering uh, and then decided to not be an engineer. But when I was doing the engineering work, I did work for like NASA and the Air Force and a bunch of highly technical things. And I would say that that was really critical because it shaped the way that I solved problems uh, and also really was really helpful in, in lateral thinking, right? You know, when you operate a business in the real world, there are real limitations and there's also real opportunity. It's the same thing with engineering. You're, you're, you're tied into the, the realities of physics. You can't just will your way into. And so I think that, that did a really good job of framing the way that I look at problems. And then when I graduated, I was like, this engineering thing is not for me. I want to do something that's a blend of, you know, analytically challenging, but also community oriented. I love people, I, I get that, you know, I'm an, I'm an extrovert. I feed off the energy of others. I want it to have an impact. And so I thought, oh, real estate development, that's, you know, technically, analytically challenging, but also you're literally building communities. That's how I got into the space. It's really hard to get into real estate development. So I, I started as a secretary and worked my way up, um, which was also a valuable set of experiences in how S backwards it is to work at a large company. Um, you know, if I was at a startup when I was 25, I would have moved up faster, would have had more responsibility faster. That's the downside of a big company. The upside is when you do reach a high level, you have a tremendous amount of capital behind you. I mean, I was a 31 year old running $2 billion of real estate development, um, which is crazy. It's kind of like uh, the way one of the, the, uh, leaders described it when they gave me the the promotion to start running everything, they're like. It's like a Lamborghini. We're not going to let you drive it. Um, and so you, you learn a ton in a position in that kind of position with that kind of capital behind you. Um, but then once you do it once, it's good enough fun. Like I built the first building. And they're like, all right, go build another one. I don't know. I'm going to go build another high-rise apartment building. Like, how fun is this? Um, so, it, you know, over time, it wouldn't have been rewarding for me to do the same thing over and over again. Uh, but definitely a lot learned from that culture and from that company, a lot learned from engineering. Um, did a lot learn about the culture I wanted to build at a company, one where it was more of a meritocracy, there was less red tape and we can move a lot faster um, than you can. And I don't blame them for moving slower. They're stewards of tens of billions of dollars of capital. And that structure prevents hopefully something from going super off the rails, um, but it also slows down your growth.
0: I want to go back to something you said. Uh, So I'm. You talked about your time at NASA and the Air Force and and helping you kind of stretch your lateral thinking muscles. That's a subject that's super interesting for me. Do you know Shane Snow's book, Smart Cuts? Have you heard of that one? No, It's it so sounds, good. It sounds it like sounds it. clever. Yeah, it's kind of like a shortcut is when you skip unnecessary work that hurts people. A smart cut is when you skip unnecessary work that doesn't hurt others. And, uh, oh, I love
1: that. That's been my entire career. It's a career of smart cuts. That's like literally... We, we get a high from adding efficiency to everything we do. Um, that, I like that. I will, I will take a read. That's oh. awesome.
0: It, it's, it's good. Um, but he and I've had a lot of these conversations about lateral thinking specifically. I, I'm interested, this time at NASA and Air Force, it, in what ways or what's an example of lateral thinking where it kind of pushed you and you felt like you had to stretch those muscles?
1: Um, well, so start. I guess first, I didn't actually work for NASA or the Air Force. I worked for a company that we did a bunch of contract work for them. Okay. Um, so just, you know, I didn't, I didn't get to don an astronaut suit or anything fun. Um, I, when worked I was on the space station. Yeah, well, I was on the I space station it. hanging out. So I worked at something called thermoacoustics, which is using sound to move temperature. And this may be a little technical for the audience, but I'm going to explain it anyway. Anyone that went to high, high school chemistry, you had something called the ideal gas law, which is basically pressure, volume, temperature, they're all combined. And so if you squeeze a box of air, it gets hotter. And if you pull a box of air apart, it gets cooler. Well, sound waves, it turns out, are just squeezing and pulling air. They're just pressure. And so if you time sound waves in a way where they squeeze where you want to drop heat and they pull apart where you want to pull it, you can almost perfectly efficiently move temperature because there's no mechanical parts that are rubbing. There's no oil. It's actually a beautiful thing. I did not invent it. I worked some brilliant PhDs that did. But I spent my time uh, working on components of it. So building one-dimensional models of sound through space, which sounds complicated. And it was, and in that, the only way you solve things is lateral thinking. The most obvious solution might take you two years to build and an ungodly amount of money. So you're like, oh, what are the 40 other ways I might be able to solve this? Why am I trying to make it cold? Well, how cold does it need to get? Yeah. Or why, why am I, and you just, you have to question absolutely everything, uh, engineers are a little nerdy, and they, they all have nicknames for each other. And so I never shared this. whenever I'll share. And so my nickname was Sparky, which is embarrassing because I was like, awesome. you know, it was terrible. And the reason they called me Sparky was that um, there was a circuit board we needed for one of our pressure tester sensors, and it gets shipped from Germany, and Germany doesn't operate in August, and we needed it in August. So I got the blueprints. So I was like, I'll just, I'll just make the circuit boards. I went to make the circuit boards, and every time I made them, I would fry. $200 in equipment uh, and little transistors and capacitors. And so finally I had to bring an electrical engineer because I couldn't figure it out. Um, and he's like, show me how you build it. So I started building it. And when you solder, you use something called flux, which is like this acid component that when it gets hot, it, it cleans off all the metal for the um, solder joints. And he takes the flux out and he goes, this plumbing flux, it's full of lead. You're basically just building a circuit board that just has you know, small little wires of lead going everywhere. And that's why your, your shit's exploding. Um, and it was like a perfect example of how I did not approach the problem correctly, right? Like I didn't go step-by-step step and think, okay, what are all the different ways that we think out of the box, like why is, and um, you know, there's a million versions of that when you're an engineer, when you're designing something that's never been designed or building something that's never been built, yeah. um, your only limitations are physics. Uh, and so that's where, you know, within the box of physics, you get to go figure out the world. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I probably give like a thousand examples that are like that, um, but it feels very different than, and not, not to, you know, should on any of my marketing friends or our team, but it feels different than a sale. In a sale, you're trying to like convince someone of a reality that is probably some combination of real and pretend. In engineering, physics are just real. You can't fake your way through the, you know, the physics that govern the natural world. And so that was, that's, that's why you got, you got the box of the natural world and you got your brain. Um, yeah. And so I spent a lot of time in that. And when we look at a problem here at Placemaker, we always, someone starts saying that like, we could do all these things. We're like, what's the goal? What are you trying to accomplish? Okay. Break that goal into it's a parts. You know, what's the, what's the 80% thing that you need to get done? And we same thing you would do with an engineering problem. We break into the parts and we go piece by piece. And then we say, you know what? That's a terrible idea. Let's still talk about it because sometimes what happens is something that doesn't make sense ends up being the thread you need to go figure out something that does make sense. And so instead of that's another lesson I learned. Instead of throwing an idea out of, immediately, you got to like take the time to like turn it, flip it, talk about it, spin it, and there might be like this little you know nugget of truth in it that ends up being a really important component for a
0: bigger plan. Uh, there's a, there's an application I want to talk about. Are you do you guys disclose how much you've raised? We
1: have, and it's you know. It's a lot. It's it's short of a hundred million, but more than 50. We're somewhere in that range. Okay. So- Oh, sorry. That's just for the operating company. We've raised like another hundred million for the buying of the real estate. So it's like 150 million plus. You know, as you were talking about that, I thought about another way
0: that in some ways, sales can be more like physics of, uh, well, what you're describing may or may not exist. Like you're saying, unfortunately, there's a lot of salespeople that have lied to people or misled people in the name of earning a commission. Let's leave that part out and and say that we're dealing with a high integrity consultant mm-hmm. here. But yeah, to me, there is this there's like a different science of the science of human decision making and and the role between like emotion and logic in that process. And um and you know, they proved whatever in the late nineties when they got fMRI machines that could show, you know, the the frontal lobe the smartest part of our brain isn't the last part that lights up before a decision it's a limbic system where our emotions are housed so it's like essentially like the emotional judge weighs in on the logic while you're part of our brain that's annoying going back forth back forth and says well here's how i feel about that logic right so um thinking about raising that kind of money what kind of advice do you have for others that would like to raise 150 million plus so so first
1: uh, uh, the first comment you made about human behavior is spot on, and I found myself. So I'm a terrible reader, but an avid listener. So maybe, maybe like some of your, um, you know, some of the folks that listen in. So I'm a big audible person. So I, I, I've now created in my, uh, in my life and daily routine, I like bicycle to work. I, you know, I get through probably a book or two a month. Um, and I, I never realized this whole like lifelong learner thing, but it's just I'm wired for it. It's why I would get bored having to go build another high rise, right? Because it's like you're not learning anymore. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've had a bunch of books on habits have changed my total view of things. Um, a lot of Ben Horowitz's books, someone told me "Have to read it. You're like, um, oh, it's like, you, you know, and I don't know him and I don't, I'm like, you, you read this stuff and it like, it alters your reality. It alters your perception. I just finished a book called the power law, uh, which is newer, which explains the whole history of venture capitalism. Um, who's that for I- your, Uh, I don't know, because I don't pay attention, but it's called The Power Law. It's recent. And you know how like a a family can be dysfunctional? Everyone knows how a family can be dysfunctional. And the reason a family is dysfunctional is the history. All this dysfunction in venture capital can be traced back to its history, it turns out. This was like an eye-opening book for me. All the, the dumbness of the way the group think happens, the blitz scaling, the just whatever, the American versus Chinese versus European versus, it was all covered in the book. And I had this like aha moment of like, oh, this is why some of the venture capital folks do this dumb shit. and This is why they do some of this brilliant stuff. So I'd say, now that I have that context, I really wish I listened to that book in advance. But I did listen to a bunch of books about venture in advance. And then one of the first things I did when I went out to raise money was assume that I didn't know anything. And so I talked to a lot of founders who would raise money. And I showed up with a list of like 30 or 40 questions each. And I probably talked to... I don't know, maybe two dozen founders and just like picked their brain. Uh, and you we know, talked about, okay, sense of urgency and the FOMO piece and that you know, how critical it is to find an anchor first because the follow-on is easy because venture capital moves in herds. And, and, and like I'd spend all this time learning before actually going out. And then you go out and then back to that terrible swimming example, you live in the environment that is. So when we went to raise our Series C, it took a day. And we went to raise our Series A, it was like three weeks and there were people fighting over it. And we went to our series B at the end of 2019 and we're, you know, tech enabled property blended company. Well, that WeWorks I said was helped us dramatically in 2018. They're like, oh, this is the next WeWork. And then at the end of 19 is WeWorks IPO fell apart. They're like, this is the next WeWork. And it was a disaster. And I, you know, we ended up getting a couple of term sheets and we got a deal we were happy with and we got great investors in the end, but God, I met everybody. I mean, I met, I must've met with over a hundred venture shops and I just flew around the country constantly. Some people use Zoom for these meetings, taking, you know, two, three meetings a day, every day. And it sucked. And so I, my advice to people that are going to go raise money, uh, one, talk to everyone that's ever done it. Get every bit of advice, you know, learn. Learn, then craft your own strategy. Um, and then as you're out doing it, evolve, like take the feedback. Don't be better than what you're hearing. What you're hearing is your audience. Um, and I'd say never count on there being money the next day. Like give yourself the space for a bad economic environment, um, to crush your dreams and have the capital and plan to be able to bridge that. Uh, and today's environment is not all that rosy, honestly. Um, that's my best advice. And I will say that, um, Some people say it gets easier, not get easier, does not get harder. It always just sucks in my view. Maybe some people love raising money. (laughs) I hate raising money. So let's go
0: through, you know, all these different questions and and then you tried it out and some worked, some didn't. Um, Let's go through a couple of the principles that you feel like were effective for you.
1: Yeah. So uh, I would say the number one most important thing I learned is find your anchor. So let's say you're going to raise a series A, it feels like a, good round to pick so series a you have some product market fit you've learned some things um you're not just selling you and the dream you're selling you the dream and some amount of traction but if you get an anchor it's a brand so our anchor for our series a was highland capital partners you know, blue chip venture firm they've done like 50 ipos they're, they're great we have a great partner on our board um people were like oh well we're interested in you know, small and we're like, guys, we're not talking to anyone until we find the anchor. And that's all the energy we fed was spite of the anchor. And once we found the anchor and negotiated that deal, the fill-in was pretty easy. So I, that's, I'd say number one. Number two, we got advice to talk to like the big brand names and make it feel exclusive. No, don't do that shit. That's a terrible idea. It's like anything you sell to customers. The more, the more customers you have access to, the more likely you are to get them to close they send it that bats, right? So we got advice, like, you know, make it feel like it's a select group of people. They get this one-time look. i talk to everybody. Absolutely, anyone who would talk to me, I'd talk to, uh, even if they weren't a fit. And so I would say that uh, when it comes to sales and conversion, if it's a certain percentage, like open the aperture of your funnel. Um, and when you get in touch with people, it should always be warm. These are enterprise deals. These are, you know, the cold outreach is a terrible idea. Um, you're starting further behind already. Uh, when you're associated with someone that they, that a person respects, uh, and the whole venture world works on networks, um, you start at a different starting line. And then also pay huge attention to who that intro is from. Sometimes there's people that are like, "Oh, I know all these folks." It, yes, they can make an intro, but if your best friend introduced you to somebody or someone you once bumped into the grocery store and introduced you to somebody, you're going to treat that introduction very differently. So the quality of your introduction matters. Um, the quality of your introduction matters and make sure you get an introduction. The next thing is kind of shitty. And that is that um, the more junior your entry point into a venture shop, the less likely the deal is to happen. And I, am, I believe in a meritocracy, building meritocracy for a company. I believe in giving everyone their shot. But again, this is just an odds thing. If a partner level person is your cha- internal champion, um, the likelihood that they guard the support of others is just a lot higher. Um, and so you know you don't wanna be like an elitist about title, but what you're really trying to do is uh, get your best shot at getting a, a real clear shot at getting capital. Um, and then I, I guess the last thing I'd say is be yourself. So, and maybe that's just who I am. Like I, I, I uh, had an exec coach for a little while and I got this whole like, play by play of who I am. And my wife was like, can I read it? And I was like, yeah, she, sure. she managed, she's like, oh my God, you're the exact same person at work as you are at home. This is ridiculous. And for me, I don't have to keep track of the story I told or the thing I'm positioning. Like I, I am, I'm always the same me. I, you, you're gonna hear the same story for me, whether you're on our team, you're outside our team. Yes. Um, Maybe press, we don't share as much, but you're always gonna hear the exact same thing. I'm consistently myself as is my partner. Um, and for me, that was everything. And, and people that did end up investing, you know, we went through some, some cycles. We went through COVID. Um, then we went through Omicron and then Delta. And then we went, you know, we went through a lot of stuff. And the fact that we were who we said we were when they invested and there was no surprises, the fact that we continued to be who we said we were in the hard times that they stepped up for us. Um, yeah. And I guess the last thing is pick your partners wisely. Uh, it's a version of a marriage and they can totally screw you. So... <laughs> um, if you need the money, there's no one else. Maybe take it from someone who's terrible and you do your best. Um, but generally, you know, you should really value the caliber of the uh, the companies you work with.
0: I mean, I'll double down on that one. I mean, you hear Warren Buffett say you can't do a good deal with a bad person. And, uh, like, problem is doing deals for the deal when you have doubts about the individual, I've I've yet to see those work out. I've definitely been taking to the cleaners on it, but I've yet to see anybody else like, oh yeah, that person sucks, but we were able to do the deal and I wasn't trying to be their friend. No, it
1: never pans out that way. So, you know, I will say this. It's worked out for me a couple of times where a partner of ours was imperfect and we knew it coming in, but we structured it in a way where we had outs um, or we had ways to solve it. Yeah. Okay. But you better be handling their money; them not handling your money. <laughs> that that is that's that's true. I, I we've never worked with anybody that didn't have integrity, as in we've never worked with someone who would commit fraud or, you know, gross negligence or anything like that. We've worked with some tougher personalities, um, where you just want to make sure that the way control plays out is something that you can live with.
0: That's super well. Okay, I'm I'm with you on that. Um, well, let's go for a couple of practical tips of the actual pitch itself, like you know, what, what you, so you've got the right intro, you've got what you feel like is the right intro to the partner, you know, you're in the meeting and, uh, and you know, it's, it's game time. Um, you, you've got, we've covered be yourself. What other advice do you have for the actual, the actual meet with the partner? So it depends on your stage.
1: So I go back to why I started with like lateral thinking and engineering and goals. You have to know the goal of what you're trying to accomplish. If you're a series seed stage company, What you're trying to do is convince somebody that uh, that you're the right person to bet on. You're about to climb into a raft that's going into the ocean and you might have a, your plan actually doesn't have to be the right plan. It just has to prove out how thoughtful you are. They're really betting on the person or team. Um, And then they might be marginally betting on the space you're pursuing in this like amorphous way. By the time you get to your series B, They're investing in a real company or what should damn near be a real company. And so the things you're trying to convince somebody of in one of those meetings start to evolve. So in the earliest stages it is all about you, the team, the way you solve problems. And the later stages it's, you know, the TAM that you're chasing, what you've done, your effectiveness, the actual economics. Um, It's still the team, the team still matters. The entire bet isn't on team. You become more and more replaceable the more mature your company is. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think that's, that's kind of the way it works, right? Like you, you just point people toward the the thing. And also every time you give the pitch, it gets better. So, um, you know, if you think your most important or most likely partners are these 10 folks, make sure that they're folks 30 to 40 you speak to, not one through 10. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, you talked about team there. When
0: it comes down to being a great CEO, we're constantly given advice uh, that it's all about team. And I actually like how you delineate that, like as you become more mature, that's not always as true anymore, right? Um, When it comes to selecting who you want to recruit, what are some of your principles that that have been successful? So
1: I'll start with where we failed. We were the worst in the beginning. So we built buildings previously, me and my partner. So you're like, oh, it's like building a building. You need windows, you need bricks, you need concrete. Like, oh, we needed a Calvin, we need an HR person. Um, we didn't appreciate the the interplay between all of the different humans. So when you're building a company, it's like an organism, it's alive. And any one part of it has an impact, positive, negative, or neutral to every other part. Um, so a lot of our early, a lot of our early team isn't here anymore. We made changes because it wasn't fit for them or it wasn't a fit for us? Um, and then we became intentional about the way we recruited. So there's this um there's this great book called, uh, it's called why it's like hiring a talent. Um, and we made every single one of our team members read it before they were allowed to do recruiting. And then we structured our process. And before we went to hire someone, you have to lay out, okay, these are the 10 most important qualities and, um, you know, this is on a scale of absolutely not, not yes, absolutely. Yes. They can do it and then define it in advance. And what that does is, because what you end up doing is when you meet someone and you like them, you kind of want to hire people you like and kind of don't want to hire people you don't like. If you don't in advance create a, a framework for yourself, what you'll end up doing is just hiring people you like in that moment, as opposed to what the company needs really are. So we just got a lot smarter on that process. We also made it blind. So a number of team members all uh, interview somebody. They then put their feedback in without anybody else seeing. It turns out that when the CEO's in the room and you're the loudest voice, People won't necessarily speak up about really important things. Um, and so you can make bad hires. And um, with, through the actual interview process, it's all about getting to a no. Right, like your goal is to find the red flags that should convince you not to hire this person. You shouldn't be trying to convince yourself to hire them. They sh- you should start with a yes. They have the qualifications, they have the experience. Why should they not be a yes? That should be the entire process. Not why, how do I make them a yes? Um, and that was a, a big head Switch for us, which was like, oh, the goal should be to find out if there's a reason not to hire them. That's on the interview process, on the sourcing process, hey, building relationships in advance, having a large network. That's everything. The bigger the funnel, going back to the same as the venture folks. The bigger the funnel, the more swings you get, the higher quality talent. And then we moved to a remote first for our corporate team, which meant we, you know, I'm Washington DC based. DC metro is like six million people. US is like 330 million. So we 50 times our talent pool. Uh, and so when I was just about opening up the funnel, um, and so big open funnel, big network, and then screen, screen for the notes.
0: I love all those principles. Um, uh, that book again, that you said why a players or something? Yeah, I'll
1: look it up while we're talking. It's called the G smart method for hiring.
0: Let's talk about the other side of the coin. So you think you found somebody that you like, how do you get them to like you when it comes to, you know, those, again, a lot of times the, the top talent have options. What, what do you think has been effective for, for getting them to want to
1: hitch their wagon with you guys? A talent comes in two buckets. Um, one bucket is like all passion driven all the time. They want to work at a startup. The other bucket is more looking for stable career. There are certain roles that fall into bucket one, certain roles that fall into bucket two. For bucket one it's much like you're pitching just like you pitched to the venture folks. This is what we're building. This is why we're building it. This is why this team's going to be successful. This is the vision. For bucket two, it's like, this is why an organization like ours is a healthy place to work. It gives you the, it fulfills your needs. We treat people right. Um, And so in all cases, you're telling the same story, but the questions people will have will be different. And I'd say, be honest about the role, the company, everything else. Because just like the venture dollars, if you mispromise, you're going to find yourself on the wrong side of a fit later. Um, the last thing is we got advice from one of our board members. She used to run talent for uh, Wayfair. She said there was a point in time where they hired 10,000 people in 18 months, which, make me wanna, which made me want to throw up. And she was like, you know, what, what percentage of people don't work out for you guys? And we're like, oh, this is great hiring methods. Maybe it's 5% don't work out. And she's like, that's not enough. Like, is your process slow? We're like, yeah, it's kind of slow. We're always behind. It, and so there's a balancing act between speed and certainty. Um, she's like, oh, maybe you should be at 10% don't work out. And then you should have the management talent to be able to make those changes. Uh, and so we've tried to get faster at recruiting, especially in high growth windows where we're trying to grow real fast and not having a button seat can actually be more painful than, um, you know, getting the right person, but four months later.
0: Uh, there's something else you talked about. Uh around, uh, having a exec coach, um, when you think about the idea of, you know, just how many times venture funds replace founders, they're like, Oh, that person was good enough to be a CEO till this level. And, uh, and then, you know, now they were actually so successful that now we need somebody better than them to run this thing or for the next phases, Right. Um, when you think about the concept of like continually qualifying for our jobs and like scaling ourselves to continue to be the right CEO at the higher and higher levels. What advice do you have for
1: founders? You're not always going to be a fit for every stage of your company. I guess I'll start there. Um, Like That shouldn't necessarily be the goal is to grow into somebody you're not or be something you're not. Sure. Um, So I guess the first is self-awareness. There's plenty of folks that are really solid at just like the the creative grind and everything that it takes to go start and figure out an idea and build it, but just are not well suited for the large infrastructure to run a, a big platform or a company or whatever. So you say know that about yourself. Um, and it, it goes back to the continual learning, right? Like you just, you know, if you've never worked at a public traded company and you're about to become a publicly traded CEO or president, like you, you better invest in yourself to learn what it means to be the leader of a publicly traded company. If you're about to be the head of a 10-person startup and you've never worked a small organization, like, you know, a little lifelong learning, like, you better get real smart first before you just assume that it's going to run the same way it's run previously. Um, But I'd say if it's not a fit, it's not a fit. That sounds kind of terrible, but, you know, we all have things we're good at and not good at. And if someone was a great player in high school, they made, you know, and they loved high school baseball. They may just not be the right height or structure for the major leagues. And that's there's nothing wrong with that. Um but, but I think that's a reality.
0: I like both those answers. You know, um I just read uh what's his name, Randolph's book, the first CEO of, of Netflix. And, you know, he was honest that like he wasn't the he wasn't the big company guy. And so, you know, Reed Hastings was kind of like the first investor, right? And took bigger, and bigger roles. And then eventually like it made sense. Like, oh no, he's He's the guy for, for big company Netflix. Mark Randolph is the guy for getting Netflix from nothing to something, you know, and he's at peace with that. Or like, um, one of my really good friends in Boise, um, he's like, he's kind of like a holding company entrepreneur. Like he gets things going and then puts in great management. It's kind of like that visionary integrator EOS system, right? So he's like, again, he's doing like, uh, I probably shouldn't, Quote numbers, but, but he has a personal net worth, uh, many multiples of the top 1% in the country. Okay. And, uh, he's got six companies at the same time, which everyone says you can't do. And, but he, he's only the visionary for six companies. You know Like he gets them going, gets it up. He's, he's still like the chairman or the adult supervision or whatever, but like he's, he's had integrator. So could you stop coming to the company meetings, please? You're giving people whiplash with all your good ideas, you know? And, and he's okay with that. And then also we had, we just had uh, Kazuki Ota on the show and he grew, you know, he founder of treasure data grew over, you know, they're over a billion dollar mark. And he talked about how he has been listening to earning calls of public company CEOs and reading reports and kind of exactly what you said about prepping for that next phase of like, he's going like, yep, that is what I want to do. So I need to get qualified for the job. And I, I thought it was fascinating that he's like talking about how he picks apart earnings
1: calls. Like rethink what's it going to be like when I have to do that. For us, that always makes a ton of sense to me for, for us, we were probably big company people that started a small company. So as the company has gotten more scale, it's felt more and more normalized to us. You know, going from running really large projects and really large teams to being like the 10 of us in a room while it was a lot of fun, um, was highly unstructured. Relative to the world that me and my partner came from. And so for us, oddly, as the company has gotten bigger. It's become more and more natural um, to have that infrastructure and to have that, those frameworks, and the, um, which has been fun for me. A lot of people say like, oh, you know, at the end of this journey, are you, you know, what, what are you going to do now? Ne- what are you going to start next? I am never starting another company with five people in a room killing myself for two to three years. Like I just, you know, like, like know yourself. I was like, I got one good early stage piece in me. Um, but, you know, there's some people that just thrive in that. Right? Like that's just where their energy's at.
0: What's another piece of advice? So, so let's say you're talking to a CEO who, some founder who's saying, no, I really think I'm the guy to go zero to billion. What would be another piece of advice you'd have for someone who that's their ambition?
1: Surround yourself with amazing people. Um, you know, if you're like, hey, my ambition is to go build a skyscraper, you're A, never going to do it by yourself. And B, never going to have eyes on everyone that's laying every brick and putting every window. It's so like surround yourself with highly talented people, motivate them, give up the upside, your upside, like cut them into the company, cut them into the deals. Um, a high performing team can do so much. Um, a single individual cannot. That's great. Uh, so I'm a total book nerd. I want
0: to know what other book recommendations you have. Uh, I I'm, I, I probably read less than a book a year, but, uh, I, I listen constantly like yourself. Um,
1: yeah. So, uh, I guess I, I as I mentioned before, uh, I love Ben Wertz the hard thing about hard things. Um, uh, founder actually had me read that. It's probably one of my favorite books ever. Um, I've recently been obsessed with habits and habit loops. So the power of habit, atomic habits are both like helpful ways to start to restructure the way you think about how you actually act. Your point earlier on in the conversation about like the human brain and how it works and how it makes decisions. Um, I actually have a, a a pact with myself to listen to the power of habit once a year moving forward, just to remind me that I'm just a creature of my chemistry. Um I recently listened to uh A Ride of a Lifetime, which is Bob Iger's book. Hmm. Uh, the the uh the founder of uh, not founder, this is the former CEO of Disney. Oh, he's the CEO of Disney again, I think. Um but just you know, I don't operate in the corporate environment, so it was really interesting to kind of hear that all play out.
0: Um, I, I liked his rationale on buying Marvel, and it was fun to hear like what was going on in his head at the time, right?
1: Yeah, totally. And and then for me, just like it, it was so representative of like big company culture, though, just the like the power play and the politics and the literally like politicking for the roles. And um, I also I I love um, biographies. Will Smith's book Will was. Oddly amazing. Um, I've tried to listen to a couple more since then that just haven't really done it for me. Um, sign and Seminics, uh, start with why, even though I find it to be a little, a lot salesy. Um, a bunch of nuggets in there. I um, Another biography that was good was um, Born a Crime. It was Trevor Noah's book, um, which was enjoyable. And then anyone who's built companies. So film like Shoe Dog, a little slow at points, but just the story was incredibly motivating um yeah i don't know um can't hurt people's a good book too about pushing yourself through pain do you see the oh, next mean, one just came out no no yeah, what's it, it about ago uh
0: i don't know I haven't, I haven't finished i haven't gotten it yet but uh, it's definitely on the on the hit list for me uh, right. can i make can i make a recommendation yeah of course uh kind of along with your habits thing um you know the whole like malcolm gladwell ten
1: thousand hours Stuff. Yeah, I, I remember like when I was in college, I read all, I actually read all those books. I don't think Audible was a thing that or I didn't listen to it. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, so you know, he was misquoting research by Anders Erickson, kind of the guy who really pioneered deliberate practice and proved the previous 400 years of brain science wrong. And so yep. his book Peak is probably like the best scientifically, but the most entertaining is uh, this reporter Daniel Coyle started traveling around the world visiting talent hotbeds like why does this crappy tennis court in Russia have more women on the pro circuit than the entire United States? Or how does this physics professor in Vancouver teach like a whole year's worth of physics in three weeks? Or just all these places that have like unnatural amounts of of high talent, right? And basically, he gives you like the real world examples of the science of becoming an expert the fastest. And so like, especially as you're looking at your habits, things, uh, I think you, I think you might find it just kind of getting to know you a little bit here today. Like, I wonder if it would really uh, fit with kind of the way you break the world down into bite-sized pieces and Lego it back up the way you want it. That's how I just would describe Lego it. I, 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 li- I like that Lego. it. That's yeah. Biggest question for last or favorite question for last. Um, I want to talk about product market fit and the idea of, you know, making stuff that, well, I'm not even going to finish that sentence. For, let's start with, how would
1: you define product market fit? So many people define it differently. Yeah, product market fit is just making, producing things that people want. I mean, it's it doesn't have to even be effective for them. It's just making things that people want. They may not know that they want it, but things that people want.
0: Yeah. When you think about the kind of organizations that have such great product market fit that the company <laughs> is able to get giant, um, what do you think that, what do you think that process is like? Or what do you think those people are doing? Or how are they holding themselves to a higher level of accountability of like, not just people want it, but people really, really want it and refer their friends and buy it again. And the, you know, how are they engineering a product that has
1: that much magnetism? It's a really broad question because there's all sorts of ways that there's like product market fit, right? Like you could get to something that's like highly technical and just beautifully performs at its like technical specs. Um, and I would say in that there's a tremendous amount of perfection and eye on the detail, or you could get to something that just like connects with people. Like Taylor Swift just did this, you know, she's doing this concert and you can't even buy a ticket. People are so in love with Taylor Swift, right? Like, I think it's a, it's a very big spectrum. Um, but in the end it's, it, it has to do with knowing your customer. So there, there's a different, there's a different thing you focus on depending on who your customer is. Um, so let's, let's talk about your customer.
0: Tell us a yeah. bit about the evolution of like, here's what we thought it was at first. And then here's, we found out what we
1: needed to, to tweak. So the easiest part for us, as much for, we have our customer, which are our consumers. And we have our customers. Yeah, let's talk about your consumers group. in this case. Great. That's a lot easier. Cause the real estate people, we were just building it for ourselves. Cause that's where we came from. Um, for our consumers, we had these like grand visions of all these amazing things we could do in this tech enabled way. And it turned out, um, that you can't do like, you can't become Picasso until you can paint a regular picture. And so, you know, we started a feedback loop where we get, you know, every guest, every resident, fill out a survey, we get our net promoter score. And it turned out the things that we suck the most at were access, control, and cleaning. Two completely unsexy things. And we're like, oh, but, you know, if we could do this, like, tie into, like, local, local restaurants, if we could do this, like, food delivery. And we're like, why are we screwing around on these things that, like, only matter when we get the basics right and so for us that was a a critical lesson like team we don't get the luxury of of doing the edge case you know really amazing stuff until we absolutely nail the basics and have a feedback loop to continue to know when we're missing on the basics so they can very quickly be, be corrected that was probably one of the biggest learnings for us the other is um we thought we could buy absorption. We're like, oh, at a at a cheap price, everyone would stay with us. Also not true. Um, turns out that like uh price can actually be a ca- a contraindicator of uh right. So like bad price, low pricing makes you look bad. It's like the wine industry. So sometimes it's better to have higher prices or lower occupancy. That was alerting. Um and the last thing is that people are lazy. And so um if they see something that's new, they're probably less apt to do it unless they get some high from having to deal with new things, which require real thinking. Um, and so what we found was one of the most valuable things for our product was to let people experience it. And so our consumer team, one of the, our sales team, one of the first things they do is just try to get someone to show up. Whether that's giving them a free room night or taking them on tours. Uh, for a company that's remote first, we hugely value the in-person physical when it comes to our product because for people to be able to see and experience it changes their entire perception of it.
0: Listen, I want to be uh, respectful of your time here. What do you want to end with today? Well, first, let's give everybody the website.
1: Uh, it's placemaker.com, dot uh, rcom It's not M-A-K-E-R. But if you put the E in, we bought the domain name, you'll still get to the right place. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, so... If there's something interesting where you think you could work with us or the company, just shoot me a note. Um, and we are hiring. So even if it's not a fit for you, please send great talent our way. And obviously, you know, we're always looking for people to stay or live with us. So become a customer. Uh, and what kind of roles are you hiring for? Um, we're hiring across properties in the United States. We're hiring on the real estate partnership side. We're hiring on the marketing and product side. Um, we're not doing much hiring on software engineering at the moment, but, you know, we always will as we grow. Uh, we're always hiring in the accounting and finance side. Um, I'm sure I'm missing and a And what bunch. what are, what kind of cities are kind of your, where do you have the biggest presence? Uh, our biggest physical presence on the property side is Washington, D.C. Metro, because we started here, followed by Nashville, and then we've done, you know, single buildings or a couple of buildings in other cities. Uh, our... Corporate team, though, is remote first. So you can live anywhere in the United States. That's fine as long as you're willing to work East Coasts, Central, West or mountain time hours. Um and we we say remote first physically supported. We fly everyone together twice a year to spend time together, to cross-functional work, speakers, maybe have too many drinks together in an evening. Um, but yeah, you can live anywhere in the United States, which is one of the benefits of working for us.
0: Our our team is mm-hmm. Is remote. Uh, I'm interested in any principles you have for people excelling
1: at remote first corporate team. So I don't believe in hybrid. I guess I'll start there. Um, I think you're either an office company or you're a remote company, but trying to balance the coordination of is a recipe, I think, for disaster. So um, that being said, I, I, yeah, I guess
0: you I say we're remote only is <laughs> actually yes. Us.
1: So, I, I, so I advocated for hybrid and our exec team was like, that's stupid. You're stupid. This is why you're stupid. And I was like, yeah, you guys are right. And so I'm a, f- a fervent believer now that you're either an office culture or your remote culture, um, but you, you can't, the, the in the middle, it creates more headaches than it's worth. In terms of remote, you have to be really intentional about it. So everyone's required to have their calendar open so that you can actually coordinate with people, right? Because you can't just walk by their office. And um, every meeting we have that's mixed mode, meaning there's some in person and some people that are remote. This is probably the best thing we figured out is every single person takes out their laptop logs into zoom where teams points the camera at their face and you do a polycom for the in-person piece. And that way everyone that's remote or everyone that's a person has the exact same experience and you can see everyone's face, the whole camera at the end of a conference table is like looking through a pinhole. It's just, you can't read people's interactions, their faces. Um, so we do that, um, and then making sure you create the physical time together is really important. Um, and so we do that at a company level and a team level. Um, and then adjusting. So I'd say everyone's pretty new or most people are pretty new to remote first as a core business practice. And so you should have the same feedback loops for engagement surveys and like to understand what's working, what's not working and you should adjust, um, because we're all new to it still. That's great.
0: Okay. What do you want to end with today? What's something we didn't cover?
1: Uh, uh, most, most important thing in the entire business, picking the right partner. So um, I don't know how anybody builds a business by themselves. Life happens, you know, tragedy, triumph, whatever. You know, one person having full responsibility in all things uh, would be life crushing. Um, so my partner and I, we, we more or less co-CEO of the company. There's a tremendous amount of trust. We've broken the company up into a couple of pieces. I can step into his role if need be. He can step into my role if need be. And we're each other's thought partners on any complex things. We'll go to room with a whiteboard for a couple hours. Um, picking the right partner is the entire business uh, as a founder. So if you're going to make one really big life decision, that's the one to get right. Love it. Couldn't agree more. Thanks for doing awesome. this. Yeah, Jess, thanks for having me. This is
0: a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> okay, bye everyone.